0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered, a new podcast series brought to you by VML r I'm Nick Brunker, a director of experience strategy and your host for the show. We're glad you're with us. Thanks for listening. On every episode of Human Centered, We explore how brands, both large and small, are creating meaningful customer experiences and discuss how professionals like you can tap into CX best practices to create value and gain traction in transforming your business. Great discussion on tap today. We'll chat about the evolving landscape of commerce in the experience era and chat a bit about how brands can keep up with this pace of rapid change. To help us do that, I'm excited to be joined by Executive Vice President of VML and r Commerce and our co-lead of our Cincinnati office, Jacqueline Baker, or as she's more commonly known around here, JB. Welcome, JB. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. here. Yeah, same here. Before we dive in, tell us a bit about you and your background.
1: Sure. Um, I've been um, working in the commerce space for kind of arguably my entire career. I actually started off um, on the as a merchandise broker, uh, calling on the Kroger company, representing um, a whole host of brands and, and selling their products into Kroger. And from there, sort of shifted over into the agency landscape in shopper marketing. And then over time, I've just sort of grown up in the space and have spent the last 10 to 12 years, heavily focused on uh, e-commerce, and it, it's interesting because you know marketing is a passion of mine and um, something that I've spent my whole career doing. But I I would certainly say I never intentionally set out to create a career in the commerce space. It sort of happened organically over time. But what's been very interesting to me, and as I've you know advanced further in my career and get um, you know, deeper and deeper in the space of commerce. What I think I've, I've come to learn about myself is that I have. A, a passion for for growth with clients and 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 customers and i'm a little bit of a student of the world uh, around what what makes people take action and so I'm, I'm super fascinated by getting consumers to to actually do something and that do something that i like to see is is buying something um because regardless of what vertical you're in what uh what type of product you're you're selling we're all in in the business to sell things right and and i think there's something super fascinating about the e-commerce space that allows us to really be able to see the impact of our work and our effort you almost in a real time. So, yeah. So, I mean, commerce has become a passion. It's become <laughs> uh, kind of my whole, my whole world. And, and I would say I didn't necessarily intend for that when I, when I started down this journey, but it's been a fascinating journey so far and I'm liking where it's going.
0: Totally. And it's become a situation where it's, rapidly changing by the day. And I think we talk about COVID and, and even without the impact of the pandemic, which we'll get into in, in just a little bit, the dynamics of how uh, over the course of your your many years at Rockfish and then VML and VML and um, the, the dynamics around how we as customers buy things and you know goods and services have been changing super super quickly explain some of those dynamics um, especially lately and what you've been seeing
1: sure and you know, the space was rapidly evolving before 2020 so I, w- I kind of won't even um, get into the impact <laughs> of, of the, the pandemic just yet but you know kind of before you know going into 2020 you know what we've seen is Huge channel shifts with consumers, and in an overarching view of commerce becoming increasingly connected and seamless, where you know, you can buy any just about anything, anytime, anywhere. In in a lot of cases, you're seeing brands, you know, creating opportunities for you know completely touchless commerce. And you know, using things from touchless cards and um, things like e-wallets and things like that, all the way through to like retinal scans um, in kiosks uh, that'll you know allow you to to buy something without touching, um, without having to really interact with with currency and things like that which is super fascinating. I think what also you started to see is brands that were more traditional you know traditional retailers, bigger brands starting to behave more like startups and really lean into um, innovation and test and learns and and you know, self-scanning robots and driverless grocery you know delivery cars and things like that. Where for the longest time, kind of the, the big behemoths of, of the industry, you your WalMarts, your Progers, your Walgreens, et cetera, um, were kind of slow to adopt new technologies and 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 roll out new opportunities because that their sheer scale and size would make that you. know, Cost prohibitive, and there was this sort of apprehension um, to new technology, thinking that consumers wouldn't adopt that. And so, what you're what you're seeing now is the industry sort of coming to grips with the fact that consumers are adopting new technologies, new channels, um, new ways of interacting at an increasingly rapid pace. And in order for retail, whether it's online or physical, to keep pace with that, you have to be willing to test and learn and and lean into these new technologies. And, And so now it's a little bit of an arms race for who can bring the next best experience and most innovative and interesting experience to the customer, whether it's online or physically. But on the other side of that, what you are also seeing is a lot of startups and sort of digitally native vertical brands starting to behave more like more like grownups, um, and, and <laughs> kind of you know, for lack of a better word, and um, leaning into physical retail, and and so taking their the experience that they had created and the following that they had amassed online, and then bringing it to a new group of people in a new way of experience. Those brands through physical retail, and you see that with brands um, like Warby Parker and Casper, um, and, and it's it's interesting because you know the, those types of brands really grew up in the online space, and that's where. You know, they found their customer base. They were able to utilize real-time insights and co-creation and influencer with their actual um, shoppers. But when you move into a physical space, you reach a new audience and you get new insights when you are able to actually see consumers interacting with your products and talking with your sales associates, and, and it unlocks new opportunities for growth and new new avenues for optimization and expansion from a, a customer experience perspective. And so you, all of this landscape was changing pretty rapidly going into 2020, and it's been a really... Really interesting ride over the last couple of years to see how the, the space has shifted.
0: Yeah, I was gonna to kind of go back to some of that. You mentioned the experience and you know how customers their perception of you. And we talked about this last last episode with with both John and Jeff. And, and we talk about perception being your customer experience reality. I think it's super interesting that to kind of pry a little bit deeper into what you said about understanding how not only the you know, retailers are having to shift and, and learn what their customers want, but be in a position to act really quickly. And, you know, some of these bigger teams, the bigger retailers, the bigger brands, you know, as any company I would imagine has gone through, it takes a lot more to move the the Titanic, so to speak, than it does when you're those nimble startups. So um, how much in, as a commerce lead and a commerce focused uh, professional, are you starting to do a lot more or perhaps as much at, at minimum um, conversations with uh, consumers and understanding kind of when they're buying something, what is their mindset? What is their motivation? Talk to me about kind of the plan to help be a good steward of, of those retail partners that, that we and other other professionals might have.
1: It, it's interesting because it it's achievable and, and certainly a feasible endeavor for us to be on. But on the surface, it seems completely daunting that consumers have an endless supply of touch points and multiple devices and right. expectations that are exponential and and what's interesting is that they truly expect the brands that they engage with whether it's on a brand level or with a retailer that is you know fulfilling the brands that they want that you know them at every point in their journey at any point of the day wherever they are whenever they are and that they're getting a personalized experience and that is certainly a daunting task when you think about that from a brand perspective and especially if you're more of a brand that is you know sold through like a third-party retail platform because oh, now you're even once further removed from the consumer in order to get your product in their hands but yet you're consistently in a race against consumer expectation and and an expectation that's changing every day and multiple times a day and often is influenced by other brand experiences that they're having completely unrelated to your category. But yet if a consumer has a great experience with a brand, they now want that level of service and that level of, of experience with every other brand. And so it's a very steep uphill climb um, <laughs> that, that, that I think, what I, but also what I find is so interesting about that and fascinating to me is that there's, I don't think you're ever, there's a summit to the mountain. You're going to keep climbing and keep climbing and the, the race is never over because the expectations and, and what what a consumer wants from you changes daily and that will continue to do so as as more opportunities become available to them, more channels, more devices, more anything really. And so there's something inherently fascinating, but also mildly concerning from a brand and a marketer's perspective knowing that you're racing against time and you're racing as fast as you can to meet these expectations and to win in a space but that as long as you're kind of going into this with the mindset that there's no finish line and so every every day you get up and you run that race as hard as you can but the, <laughs> right. that finish line is going to keep moving and I think for a lot of clients and, and a lot of marketers that's a that's a scary place to be. For me, I actually, it's kind of what gets me out of bed
0: in the morning. I was going to say, uh, it's so much fun. Like that's, that's kind of yeah. why we do what we do, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I kind of love the idea that we're going to go create the next, the next best and next biggest thing for consumers, and then the very next day we got to go do it again. And so the 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 creativity and uh, the strategy and the logic that it takes to win is is a consistently moving target, which is I think a
0: lot of fun. Totally, and I guess there's really one example that we can pull out to kind of segue into to how COVID has has impacted those expectations and how the changing expectations now accelerate even. Further further, uh, but you take the example of, really, you could take two, the idea of click and collect, um, or like you were mentioning earlier, touchless payment. Um, th- those are two things that were potentially looked at, I would imagine, by by consumers as a yeah, really nice thing to have, but not a game changer, not an absolute mandatory, uh, you shift into a world where... COVID has changed expectations. And and unfortunately, you know, out of fear potentially, or just, you know, general need of, I need to go get my groceries, but I don't want to go in the store. Like big brands, these are retail examples. But really, if you think about it, Anybody who's buying or selling is kind of in a similar boat, where they they kind of have to go back to the drawing board and reassess what they thought they knew about the consumer expectations. And uh, I would imagine those two examples are uh, among many that you've seen in your uh, the last you know nine or ten months, in, and perhaps longer in COVID as we started to ramp ramps sadly into that that dangerous territory. Talk about those accelerating trends and how COVID has put an impact on how you do business as a marketer and a lead of commerce.
1: Yeah, so 2020 certainly had a very um, <laughs> a strong. I guess we'll go with strong impact on um, the business and the way that we see the world. We, coming into 2020, and you know, for the last couple of years, you saw um, a rise in click and collect models, especially in the grocery space. That that space was it was a little slow to pick up initially, and consumers, quite frankly, were a little slow to adopt the technology. There was sort of a a reservation from the the masses of you know this idea of relinquishing control and saying I'm not going I I can't have some person that I don't know picking out my tomatoes they don't what if they don't know how to pick (laughs) out good tomatoes right and so there was this this hesitation slowly but surely more and more consumers started to adopt that type of experience and so it was certainly a growing space going into 2020 then you will you know, welcome to 2020 and uh, the kind of everything we know about consumer experience and and digital behavior from a commerce perspective kind of got Upended, mostly out of necessity, but with necessity, I think comes great innovation. And so now, what you've seen is consumers adopting these, you know, click and collect models, subscription models, things like that, at a rapid, rapid pace. To the degree that um, a couple months ago, the president of Instacart referred to the time here in in twenty twenty as every day is like Black Friday for us, mm-hmm. and that you know that's how. Fast, the space is changing, and you know consumers are now comfortable with that type of interaction. And it's in an you know an accelerated time frame, it went from they are comfortable with it to now they're expecting it. And so, in order to survive in this pandemic era. You saw those models then now being leveraged from a whole host of retail, not just grocery, where it was really kind of born out of, um, you know, from the likes of, you know, you got curbside delivery for things in beauty, like like Ulta Beauty, for example, or um, Dick's Sporting Goods, things like that, and. It's because there was this necessity for being able to transact in real time and consumers wanting to have the ability to still buy things in this in this world, but knowing that there were limitations as to, you know, whether or not it was safety precautions, whether things were actually closed down. And so you you saw those types of models then being applied across a whole host of retail of you know the ability for the ability to survive in the space but also to meet that consumer expectation and that consumer demand because you have you know an entire you know army of of consumers now going well i can have my groceries delivered to my house or i can have my groceries brought out to my car I should be able to buy sporting equipment because I'm at home mm-hmm. with my kids and I gotta keep them entertained and so if if someone can take my groceries out to my car for me why can't somebody take my my need for a new ball <laughs> ball and bat glove right and so you saw a lot of retail adopting that type of technology and things pretty quickly the thing that was interesting though is that's not actually an easy thing to stand up the, totally the, the fulfillment logistics on the back end are um, mildly daunting because what you're now doing is you're turning every single retail location that you have into a distribution center. Mm-hmm. And and so your n- consumers are needing to be able to buy things on what they're seeing as a singular website or you know as a, a singular entity or platform but n- having the ability to have the items that they want are available at the store that's five miles from their house versus, you know, sitting in a warehouse somewhere that's going to get you know mailed out. And so these types of adoption of the platform from a consumer perspective was happening much faster than I think the industry could necessarily keep up with the pace because the logistical backends um, to make those experiences
0: true is no small feat. Well, and what's interesting about that too, I think is, is you look at the, the digital natives that, and we'll just use Amazon as an example, they have been investing in what? physical space. I mean, I'm sure tech, technology and infrastructure and all that stuff, but one of the big things that, you know, the traditional guys, as you talk about, you know, the evolution of, of how we adapt to these these customer experiences, the big guys who have lots of physical space potentially have something that those digital startups, those digital natives, even the digital um, incumbents like Amazon, they just don't have and they have to invest in. Because now all of a sudden, you know, your you know 10,000 store footprint uh, becomes a super relevant and super important business advantage because now all of a sudden, like you mentioned, it's not just a store anymore. It's also a fulfillment center, perhaps a pickup. I mean, even we saw what was at Walmart trying to to go out there and and turn in um, you know smaller locations into these kind of pick and collect centers for for fulfillment. It's it is fascinating, and I imagine that as as you work with with brands, there is a, a lot of work that has to be done in supply chain too. So it's not only do these people have to have the infrastructure set up, but you have to have the information to know that this piece of product or something that you're going to sell is available at that exact moment at that exact location so that you can come and click and collect, which is just a daunting undertaking, I would imagine.
1: Exactly. And to, you know, just to add to the uh, the difficulty and things that have to be considered, speaking of supply chain. Then you flash forward to sort of Q4 of 2020, when you get into, the, the holiday season and mm-hmm. arguably the biggest retail uh time frame of the year with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, the singles day with Alibaba, all of those types of things. And even this year you layered on with Prime Day being um, delayed when Prime Day typically occurs in J- the July timeframe. Right. You know, now got pushed, you know, pushed out closer to the holidays. What you're now what you're experiencing is substantial pressure on the supply chain from a delivery fulfillment standpoint because you've got all of these consumers shopping online in these huge retail environments at a time when they're typically doing that but they're also marrying their holiday shopping behaviors within store and, and they're not. Their shopping behavior is shipped at online mm-hmm. and so this massive influx of packages that have to get shipped out and, and delivered to consumers in a time frame that's going to be conducive with holiday gift giving and things like that. You also have their you know families can't get together so you're shipping more gifts um, to to family versus you know bringing them to the holiday party that type of thing mm-hmm. and so all of this sort of creates this perfect storm of fulfillment that also weighs heavily on the consumer mindset because consumers as a on a you know on a broad level are very anxious about this so you also saw an influx of heavy shopping moved up and so instead of kind of the the crush of December shopping, you saw substantial spikes in online shopping behaviors in the month of November, which was really the consumer mindset of fear in terms of shipping challenges that may or may not occur, knowing that there's this giant influx of, of online shopping. And so if if everyone's doing this simultaneously, there's got to be a huge strain on on the system in order to Actually fulfill that level of demand. There were some interesting solves that are I say solves in quotes, but um, (laughs) solves that I think retailer some retailers you know took some concerted efforts to to try to ease that pressure both on themselves from a supply chain perspective, but also to ease the pressure on consumers from an anxiety perspective. You saw things like Target and Home Depot um, and you know a whole host of others extending the timeframe. Raymond, instead of saying Black Friday sales, door busters, you know, everything was all about Black Friday, they extended Black Friday for the entire month of November mm-hmm. and offered those those prices and those promotions and deals for an entire month. And from a consumer lens, that feels really good. And it feels like, oh, this consumer or this retailer cares about me and, and is trying to help me, but really what they were doing is alleviating their own supply chain pressures. But in a smart way. Yeah. And and what we've seen in the in the dollars and in the, the results from Black Friday purchases and arguably the entire month of November purchases are up pretty substantially, I want to say about 21% up year over year. And, and so clearly, it's working. Uh, you even saw your know, Singles Day, the Alibaba is you know, the biggest retail event of the year. And there's certainly no shortage of, of growth that would happen there. And, and I think no one you know expected different. But I, I don't know that anyone expected quite what we saw this year, which was that Singles Day sales were up 85%. They did 70 79, almost seventy-nine billion dollars in sales, and really the the biggest shift that they made was instead of making it a one-day retail event, they made it an eleven-day retail event. Mm-hmm. And again, part of that, you know, from a consumer perspective, it feels like an event. It feels like you're trying as a retailer to accommodate them, and and you are. I'm, not, I'm certainly not suggesting that the retailers don't care about their customers. They absolutely do. But ultimately those types of decisions are made in order to alleviate the pressure on the back end from a fulfillment standpoint, and and try to ease the burden of a crush of holiday shopping all happening online simultaneously.
0: Yeah, and I think what is really cool about it is it's unlocked the you know, ability in all of this. If there's if there's silver lining, if there's such a thing, or positives that you talk about the development of the industry is that it has unlocked a whole bunch of really new not only experiences, Experiences, But different ways to to market and to create really cool experiences for, for buyers and shoppers. And I think brand building at the commerce layer thinking tactically for the moment, for those that are listening to the podcast that are thinking, well, how do I how do I impact um, the work that I'm doing or how can I shift my focus? How can I do better in winning digital shelf and um, creating experiences for customers that will not only be able to play in these different fulfillment models that you just talked about, but also be in a position to, you know, make somebody go, huh, that was really interesting. That's a new experience I didn't expect, or maybe an experience I didn't expect in this particular category vertical. Thinking of things like the the live streaming events that you start seeing on Amazon. I know that was something that was huge at Singles Day, too. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about the uh, big keys to success and evolving that digital shelf in the experience era.
1: I think one of the first things that, and I I would hope that brands are doing this now, but I, from what I see, I see that there's still a lot of legacy behavior and um, processes that have to, you know, find their way out of the system. But I I certainly urge brands and you know brand managers, brand leaders to strive to plan without what i'm calling funnel vision Mm. and and thinking about the the marketing funnel in the, the you know historically the way that we think about it in kind of this linear fashion of awareness to consideration to conversion those those three things still very much exist for a consumer but they happen in many cases simultaneously now and so when you think about your brand and brand awareness and what it means to build your brand, what you stand for, um, what's your equity, how does it show up in the world? Putting those building blocks in place in commerce first and in a, in commerce platforms, and you really utilizing those platforms as brand building tools, not thinking about commerce separately from brand, thinking about you know, when. Upwards of 70% of product searches start on a retailer site, not on Google. And when a consumer goes to a retailer site for product search, it is not always because they intend to buy that product on that particular retailer or even right now. Consumers are now predisposed to know that if they go to a retailer to look up a product or learn something about a product that they're interested in, they're going to find the information that they want there. They're going to have access to things like ratings and reviews and those things matter. And so you're not Googling XYZ products to find out more about it. You're, you're going to Amazon or you're going to Walmart and you're typing that in because you want that experience. So brands have to think of those platforms as owned channels. And while they don't own the channel, they do own their experience on the pages that they show up on. You certainly have limitations within the platform that you have to live within, restrictions, but that's still your space to create the experience that you want your consumer to have with your brand. And if we're not planning for and thinking through using those platforms sort of first and thinking about them as the new brand.com, it's a huge miss as a brand because that's where the consumers are and that's where they're seeking out that information having those brand building tools in place is more important, not just from a brand equity standpoint. You certainly, when a consumer gets to your your page or your experience, you, you want them to have the interactions with the brand that, that are in line with your equity and what you want your brand to stand for. But there's more to it than that. You have to have all of the right content in place in order to win search. And winning search means winning everything. And digital shelf is a really interesting environment because every keyword is arguably a new shelf or a new planogram. So if a consumer, types in something and they scan the page and in page one they don't find what they're looking for. First of all, they're never going to page two. But second of all, <laughs> what they're going to do, they're <laughs> yeah, but they're just they're not. But the next thing they're going to do is they're going to go back to the search bar and they're going to refine their search, which then will bring them a whole new host of responses. So every keyword is an aisle. Every keyword is a new planogram. And so you know it's not like when you're if you try to equate it to a, a real life planogram you know in a retail environment consumers don't wander up and down the aisles when they can't find something or if they can in that environment but that's but the aisle itself doesn't change they just wander around until they find what they're looking for they go and ask an associate and they're really not going to do that i would i would also argue that expecting a consumer to click on a page 2 of search results is akin to expecting them to go find a stock person in a store and ask if they have a product in the back. That's no right. one's going to do that, right? That's right. And so winning search is the most critical component. But in order to do that, your content has to be robust and and well thought through strategically in terms of what are the types of keywords that you have a right to win and you have a right to own and making sure that you're available and showing up for the natural language and the way that consumers speak and and because what they're searching for is in the words they're using to search for things is how you show up. And so there, there's always a certain, a little dichotomy, um, from a brand building perspective in the retail and commerce environment for what does a consumer say about you or about the space versus what does a brand want to say? And sometimes those things are at odds with each other and getting getting brands to be comfortable with the fact that every part of that experience starts with how the consumer engages and so it's really up to them to initiate it and so you have to meet them where they are and speak the language that they're speaking in order to initiate that conversation
0: yeah and it just speaks to the the importance of understanding the customer journey and thinking through and you even talked about it is being able to get outside of the idea of okay what is the brand experience and then being able to to understand the journey of the customer, where they are, even if they're happening, uh, moments in the journey are happening simultaneously, being in a position to to know not only how to get them to see your product, but then once they see the product, how can you prove the promise with content and uh, potentially you know uh, other user-generated information like ratings and reviews to help give the user the confidence, the customer the confidence to, to make that next step. And it all ties back to what we've talked about in uh, our previous episode. And we talk about it, VML, and a lot, which is brand experience and customer experience working in tandem. It's just, it's super Absolutely. interesting. And, and we could, we could talk about this stuff all day. Um, but I'd love <laughs> to, to kind of wrap things up before we run out of time, you know, getting a little, uh, a chance to, to know you a little bit more and talking less about the, the business stuff and more about the personal stuff and, and get to know you a little bit. Sound good? Sure. Awesome. Well, I know we're in the holiday season you know, we're recording this podcast in, in early December. Um, we're coming off of Thanksgiving, as we talked about. And I, I want you to share a story about what your Thanksgiving looked like to, because um, to those who, who don't know JB, um, there's it, something that a story I think you would be willing to share with us about what you did this year and how you kind of worked through the pandemic craziness to deliver a pretty memorable Thanksgiving. Will you tell us what you did? <laughs>
1: yeah um so you know typically th- thanksgiving is what i call my holiday and it's my favorite day of the year and um I typically host actually both sides of the family, so you know my family and my in-laws, and I make everything. I'm kind of known in the family as the queen of Thanksgiving.
0: Um, well, your last name is Baker, I suppose that's fair.
1: <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, and I actually I make all of the things and uh, kind of control the whole experience. Um, <laughs> and because and, I'm a little bit of a control freak, but also I love it so much. And so uh, obviously this year we couldn't. Uh, all get together, and that was really sad. And so, you know, we could have thrown the the year out the window and and said, you know, let's hope for a better twenty twenty one. But instead, I had the idea of what if we, my husband and I, created the, the the experience that we offer and that we you know we deliver to our families every year, and we brought it to them. And so. I literally created the entire Thanksgiving meal, all of the desserts, all of the meal, um, <laughs> down to down to everything that I make it year over year over year, and then we packaged it all up, and we got in our little, uh, you know, jokingly my little catering van, and we <laughs> drove it around the city and brought it to our families. So while we couldn't be together, we could all experience the the Thanksgiving tradition that we've come to know over many years, um, separately
0: but together. You were Thanksgiving DoorDash. That's what you were. A little bit, yeah. Except
1: I didn't get any tips. But you know, I don't do it. I don't do it for the money. I do it for the. That's uh, right. The adoration of my loyal pants.
0: Yes, and the, the, but now here's the problem with that. You've just reset expectations. Speaking of customer experience, you've just reset the expectations, JB.
1: <laughs> I know. I right. know that's um, all right but I also felt like I had set the expectations you know all the years leading up to this that's and so fair I just couldn't that's fair. My, I couldn't bring myself to just not let Thanksgiving be true for the family they all they literally would talk to me all year about how they look forward to this day and it's their favorite meal of the day or of the year and so I couldn't let them down and so we I feel like we just got we got a little creative and so we kept <laughs> our tradition and, and we augmented it a little for 2020.
0: You're nothing if not creative speaking of holiday stuff as we get down into the the later stages of the year i know thanksgiving you just mentioned is one of your favorites Um, you've got a a son jackson and you know obviously the holidays are so much fun for the kids but what kind of holiday traditions do you have as you lead up to to christmas break
1: um well we have been very heavily involved with this year so far with the elf on the shelf um my son kind of loves his he actually has two um uh, their names are Rocky and Kevin, and they come every year once the tree is up. And so we always put the mm-hmm. tree up the day after Thanksgiving, and then that's sort of the, the the symbol to the North Pole that it's time for Rocky and Kevin to come back. And so they have, and so they you know they've been with us for a couple weeks now, and uh, we you know ha- are having a lot of fun with. Uh, little little games and leaving them treats at night and things like that and then you know there's just much so much joy when he wakes up in the morning and goes running out to to look at the mantle to see what what they have done or where they are and did they take did they eat the treats he left them last night and those types of things and so um we're very into that right now and we're also into Christmas lists. I feel like he makes a new list every single day. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So, j- much like uh, the rest of the world, I'm I'm online shopping like a crazy person. And uh, (laughs) I think my, my, yes, my front step just looks like an Amazon fulfillment center. Um, And so, yeah, it's been a lot of shopping and and a lot of entertaining the, the child and getting him excited um, as Christmas gets closer around his elves. You want to get lost.
0: You want to get lost in a wormhole. You got to go to to Pinterest (laughs) and see all the different ideas uh, that, um, that the different elves around the uh, the proverbial world have come up with over the years uh, for elf on the shelf. It is, It is definitely one of those things you can get stuck in hours of swiping and scrolling through all the different examples or just take some inspiration.
1: (laughs) Yes, I've I've done it. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not signing up for that. (laughs)
0: Negative. (laughs) JB, awesome conversation today. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for all of the time and the insight. Great catching up with you. Thank
1: you so much for having me. It was fun.
0: And thanks to you all for listening to Human Center. We'd love to hear your feedback on the show, too. Please give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line? You can do that, too, through email. It's humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.